They want to drop a Bible off to you if you don't have one so you can follow along. Luke 22, we'll be picking up in verse 31. And again, one more time, let's just ask God to breathe upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for um, the, the incredible blessing and privilege that it is to have the Spirit of God breathe upon the Word of God and carry it from the page into our hearts and then into our lives. And we ask you, Father, that you would give us an acute sensitivity, Lord, to what you want to speak to us individually and as a body. And that, Father, you would have your way through this text and what you intended it to do, Lord, when you spoke it and recorded it, that those purposes would be accomplished in our lives. And so we ask this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amongst the 12 apostles that Jesus handpicked and then chose and then raised up and called to be his apostles, that would be really the pillars and the foundation of the church that you and I so greatly uh, benefit from, Amongst those 12, the one that I think stands out to us the most, uh, hands down, would be the apostle Peter. And the reason why God put Peter in such a, a spotlight on the pages of Scripture and thus also in our minds is not because he loved him more than any of the other apostles uh, or because he was better or more gifted or because God would even use him uh, in a way that was more uh, um, advanced than any of the other apostles. Um, and in fact, I'm certain that God put as much into each of the 12 and used each of the 12 as much as he did Peter. We just don't have the record of everything that they said, all of the mistakes that they made, and all of the victories and, and fruit that came out of their life later on. But I believe that the reason God held up Peter for us uh, so prominently is because God wanted um, to, to raise up an example for us uh, and a picture for us that would be an encouragement in our own walk with Jesus as he takes us by the hand and also raises us up and prepares us for the fruit that he wants to bear out within our lives. Now, I don't believe that there will ever be another Apostle Peter. That is that what God wants us to see through his life is not that we would become necessarily like him or that we would be a, a shadow or a form or a pattern of Peter himself. And so it isn't an example necessarily of the ministry of Peter, but rather it's how God takes hold of an ordinary life and then changes it and makes it into something else that can bring glory to his name. Now, Peter was privileged in many ways uh, in the calling that he had and the relationship that he had with Jesus. And Peter, unlike any of the other 12 of the apostles, he had a very unique experience even at the very beginning when Jesus called him for the very first time. When Jesus first saw Peter, it was by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And the, the record is given to us in John's gospel in the first chapter. And initially, uh, Peter was brought and introduced to Jesus by his brother, Andrew. And as Jesus uh, and Peter came into each other's presence for the very first time, the scripture tells us that Jesus beheld Peter. Or you might have it in another translation that it just says that Jesus looked at Peter. 
But the word that is used by John when he says that Jesus beheld him or looked at him, it's a word that's very uniquely used within the scripture. And it doesn't mean that he just simply glanced at him or that he observed him or took notice of him, but rather it's a deeper examination that took place. The word literally means that he discerned him or that he examined him. And what Jesus did in that moment when he first looked at Peter is that he saw everything that he was, not just on the surface, but everything that he was right down to the very core and what made him work on the inside of what he is in his very heart, what made him tick. Everything about him was seen by Jesus at that moment. And Jesus spoke as a response to that observation. And he said these words to Peter. It's in John chapter 1, verse 42. He said, you are Simon, but you shall be Peter. Simon, it means shifting sand. It's a picture of what is unstable, what is easily moved, what's washed to and fro, what is common and in a sense worthless and is overlooked and stepped upon. But Peter means little rock. It's something with a little bit more stability, a little bit more structure, a little bit more form. It's something different than the simple sand that Peter was presently. And what Jesus was saying to Peter when he looked at him and saw what he was, is he said, this is what you are, but I'm about to do something within your life. And over the course of that work that I'm going to perform within you, you're going to change from being the shifting sand of something that's unstable to being the little stone of something that is stable or set or structured. And Jesus was saying to Peter, this is the work that I'm going to do in you. And the amazing thing is that Jesus saw that work from the very beginning. From the first moment that he laid eyes, he saw what he was, and then he saw what he would become. Now, throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see Peter walking with him. And we see Peter in fulfilling, really, that picture of the shifting sand, constantly putting his foot within his mouth constantly jumping out in front of Jesus and speaking presumptuously, making assumptions and constantly being rebuked or reproved or put in his place in that sense. And we see him making errors over and over and over again until we come to what we have tonight as the greatest error of Peter's life. But we see something happen in his life tonight that was probably in his testimony the most important and the most precious thing and the most necessary thing that ever happened from the time that he met Jesus until he went home to be in heaven. And so we pick up with it in verse 31 of Luke 22 tonight. It says that the Lord said, and the scene, of course, is the Last Supper. It's the last night. In fact, it's the night that Jesus will be betrayed. He's broken the bread. He's passed out the cup. And they're about to depart and go to the garden And Jesus has a little aside with Peter now, one-on-one, and he speaks to him, and he said, Simon, Simon. Interesting that he uses his first name, right? You are Simon, Shifty. He still calls him Shifty, Shifty, Shifty. Behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both into prison and to death. 
And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before you shall thrice deny that you know me. Now recall that in the Jewish uh, way of life, the day begins at sundown. So at this time, the sun has set and the day has begun. And so Jesus is prophesying, saying that before the day part of this day begins, you will have denied me three times. And so Jesus informs Peter of the denial that he's about to uh, perform. And he's also um, giving to Peter some insight into what's going on behind that denial. And that is the sifting of Peter like wheat. Now, there are four parties involved in a conversation that Peter had no idea was taking place at all. The first party was Peter himself, the unsifted servant. The second party was Satan, the devil, or who the Bible calls our adversary. The third and the fourth are the father and the son. And so the devil, the father, and the son have a conversation about Peter behind his back. And the substance of that conversation was that Satan came into the presence of God, which we learn in the book of Job is something that happens quite frequently. And Peter's name comes up and he begins to be scrutinized. And being set forth as a chief among the apostles and one who has a lot of promise, Satan sees in him some flaws. He sees that this man is much bigger in his own eyes than what his heart on the inside actually can testify to in truth. And he says, you know what? If you let me have at this guy a little bit, I believe I can expose that what's in his heart is so contrary to what is seen on the outside, that it will actually be a tarnish to your reputation and to your name. And so he says, let me sift him as wheat and let's see what this great apostle, this pillar of what will be the church, let's see what he becomes if you let me have Adam a little bit. And so the father and the son, they confer a little bit and they talk about it. And Jesus, the father, they agree. They say, you know what? That's a good thing. You're right. Peter does need to be sifted as wheat, but the parameters and the limitations are set. Jesus prays and he says, okay, but Father, don't let his faith fail. That whatever else fails in the process of this sifting and what Satan will do is we let the barrier up a little bit and let him in and have access to Peter. By the way, think about that a little bit. Satan can go no further than the boundaries that God sets up for him to pass. But they lift that boundary a little bit and they say, okay, you may go this far and no further. And now Jesus lets Peter in on that conversation. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Now, when wheat is harvested, what you end up with is what, what we would call the wheat berry. And so you see, you can picture it in your mind, a wheat field, and you would pick the head of wheat. And the first thing you would do is just kind of shuffle out the ripened wheat heads from the, the head of wheat itself. But each one of those particular heads of grain is covered with a hard shell that is known as the chaff. And so the harvester will gather all of this wheat and he'll bring it to a threshing floor and on the threshing floor in those days before they had modern technology they would bring a yoke of oxen or as many as they could find and they would have the oxen just stomp on these heads of wheat and in the process of the stomping or the crushing the 
shell, the kernel, the chaff that surrounded the valuable wheat would be broken off from the wheat head. And so you would, after this trampling of the bulls, you would have behind you just a whole threshing floor filled with wheat amongst chaff, the worthwhile among the worthless. And then what they would do is they would just take it in handfuls, they would throw it up in the air, and as the wind would come through, it would just carry away the chaff because it had no substance to it at all. And they would just do that until all of the chaff was blown off, and then what remained was the wheat that was left over. Now here's the interesting thing about the wheat after it's been sifted, is that the volume of the harvest appears to be a whole lot less. And the reason for that is because the wheat head with the kernel on it is obviously larger than just the wheat berry that's inside of that kernel, inside that shell. And so what you have when you have an unsifted grain of wheat is you have something that has an appearance on the outside, but yet no one really knows the quality of what's on the inside because it cannot be seen. You also have something that boasts value but in its present state, it actually has no value at all. Because until you remove the chaff, you cannot eat it. And so until a grain of wheat is sifted, you have two things. Number one is you don't know what you actually have. Is this a quality, useful piece of grain or not? And number two, it does you absolutely no good. You could grow it. You could cultivate it. You could harvest it. It could be great. But until the chaff is separated from the wheat, it cannot benefit anybody. And what Satan is accusing and what Jesus and the Father are agreeing about is that Peter has this incredible appearance that he has all kinds of potential, but in his present state, he's inflated. His appearance is bigger than what on the inside is actually useful. He is unseen, unknown, untested. Everything appears to be good, but we don't know if it actually is good. The appearance hasn't been proven by what's on the inside. And third, he's completely useless. Because until the chaff is removed and the wheat is exposed, that which edifies is still tucked inside. It has not yet been brought forth. And so Satan's design and desire is to crush Peter that God's reputation would be tarnished by exposing that Peter's a total phony. There's nothing on the inside. He's got no substance whatsoever. He's a total hypocrite. The father and the son see that Peter has a self-confidence problem, that he's very strong in his flesh and in himself, and that until this chaff is broken off, Peter is in a state of uselessness. And so Satan intends it for crushing the father and the son intend it for refining so that Peter can then be converted, as Jesus says, changed is the word, and thus he can then be a benefit to others. Now, here's the amazing thing about Peter within this passage. If you notice what he says there in verse uh, 33, it says that he responds, Lord, I am ready. Do you see that? What did Jesus say? Jesus says, when you're converted, meaning, Peter, you're useless. You're as useful to me in the state that you're in right now as an unbeliever would be. And Peter looks at Jesus and his self-assessment is miles apart from what Jesus sees within Peter at this point. He goes, no, 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 I'm ready, Lord. I, I've been with you for three and a half years. People go to seminary for less time than that and I've been with you. I'm ready for this. And Jesus goes, no, no, 
Because it isn't about just what you've learned in your head or seen with your eyes. But have you in your heart experienced God in such a way that you've been broken, that your heart has been revealed, and where you are in actuality what you are in appearance, the same. And that was essential that that would take place within Peter's life. And so Jesus lets Peter in on this, and then he tells him what's going to happen. He says, not only are you not ready, but within the next 12 hours, you are going to deny that you know me three times. Your strength, Peter, is light years from where you think it is. And you're about to see how strong you actually are on the inside. And so Jesus lets Peter in on it. Then he goes on in verse 35 and he addresses the rest of the table. And it says that he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and script, that's bag, and shoes, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, but now he that has a purse, let him take it. And likewise his bag. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. I was at a message once where uh, General um, Boykin, who was, um, you know, way up there, I think he was the Secretary of Defense under George W. Bush, and he's a Christian, and I went and heard him speak once, and he read this verse, and he said, what this verse is telling you and I is that you better go buy an AR-47. <laughs> and he says, if you don't have one, then you're in sin, because Jesus said you should have one. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus meant. <laughs> I'm not sure, but he said to them um, that you don't, if you don't have a sword, he says, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now, the interesting thing is that they never needed it. It never came across to a point where they actually had to have it. He says, for I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And that is that he that was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And they said to him, Lord, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. Now, what is going on here uh, in this word that Jesus gives them just prior to departing to go now uh, into the garden of Gethsemane? I believe that what Jesus is very simply letting them in on is the fact that there's about to be a change in the dynamics of the ministry. And that is that he has been with them face to face for the past three and a half years and that in just a few hours, he is no longer going to be with them. And in that transition of things practical, there is also a transition of the way things will be run and the way things are, are, are going to work out. And I think it's important for you and I to recognize this uh, as it relates to our own life and ministry, and that is this, is that there are times when the spiritual atmosphere or conditions that we are serving the Lord in in our days changes and that change necessitates a leading of the holy spirit within our lives to maybe make changes in the way that we do things uh, there might be a season of the church or you might be living in an area where there's a revival of the spirit going on and people are getting saved and there's just a standard of holiness that exists within the air and that's kind of the current and the trend of what god is doing in that place and you find that you're able in that environment to let your guard down because temptation is just at a very low level. But then God might move you or that time of revival might transition into a time of post-revival. I believe that's where we are right now in the United States of America. And it might require when there's a change in the atmosphere of the ministry that there also be a change in the way that we do things within our lives. 
I believe that can be true for a church and the way that a church operates. The, the way a church operates practically can change from season to season as God moves in different ways. Now, be careful what you hear when I say this because the word of God will never change. The doctrine will never change. The cross and the blood will never change. The culture of the kingdom of God will never change. Those things will be constant. But there are times we must remain sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit and the way that we do things within our own personal lives that we might be uh, led by him in an effective way. And so he just simply says, look, it was, you didn't need money and a wallet and a sword, and now you might. And that's it. He moves on. And so verse 39, it says that he came out and he went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, and the place is Gethsemane, the place of olive trees, he said unto them, pray that you enter not into temptation. He gives to them a warning concerning the things that are about to happen and he lets them know that there is a necessity that they themselves be in a spirit and an attitude of watchfulness and prayer. Because of the close pass of darkness that is coming, they will need the strength that comes only through prayer. And so it says that when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, that he then kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, this is an incredible prayer that we see Jesus praying at this point. He addresses the Father as he always did in prayer, and prayer being a regular part of Jesus' life. But then he asks, he makes his request, and he says it, prefaces it by the will of God, and he says, if you are willing, and then here's the request, he said, let this cup pass from me. Now, the cup that he is referring to is the cup of suffering that he is about to endure in the coming hours as he is arrested and then buffeted and then chastised with the flagellum and then crucified, hanging upon the cross uh, and abused in the way that he is about to be abused and all of the spiritual things that went along with that. That's the cup that he's talking about. But it's an interesting way that Jesus puts all of that by summarizing the entire experience into that single word, by saying, let this cup pass from me. And I believe it was intentional. In fact, I know it was intentional. Because just a few hours previously, it says that Jesus took a cup at the supper. And he said, this is the cup of the New Testament that is in my blood. The Bible tells us in Leviticus 17 that the life is in the blood. And Jesus took the contents of his life and the perfection that he had lived and it says that he gave it to the disciples, told them to divide it among themselves and he said, this is my life essentially and it is given for you. Take ye all of you and drink of it. Receive the cup that is in my life. But the part of the exchange in the equation that we don't see at the table but that we do see in the garden is that in exchange for the cup of his life that he willingly relinquished and gave to someone else, he must also in turn take a cup unto himself that he will then drink the contents of another life. And the cup that is being passed before Jesus now that he is in the garden is not the cup of his own life that was filled with perfection and that earned eternity rightly, 
but rather it's the cup that contained all of the sins of all of humanity. If his cup of righteousness could be given for a multitude, now he takes a cup that has been filled by the sins of a greater multitude. That is the sins of you and I. Every sin that we've ever committed and the punishment that that sin deserved was inside that cup. And the father now placing that before the son for the reason and sake of saving mankind, he says, son, if salvation is to take place, then it is essential not just that you lay down your life and give it to them, but that you also absorb their lives and what they have coming to them. And so the cup passes in front of them and Jesus knowing not only what it is, but what it will cost, prays earnestly three times, though we're only told of one in Luke, that that cup would pass from him if there's any way in the will of God for the purpose of God to be fulfilled otherwise. Now we know that the outcome of the story is that the cup did not pass from him. And what that tells us quite clearly is that there is no other way for man to be saved other than the exchanging of the cups. That is, your life being drunk by Christ and his life being received and drunk by you. There is no other way to be saved. And if there was, then this was the time that God would have revealed what that way was. Because the Bible says that if we pray anything according to his will, we have it. And if Jesus prays something according to the Father's will, you know that he will have it, but he didn't. There was no other way for salvation. And thus, he surrenders to the will of God in this thing, but he had to surrender of his own accord. And he did. And he did. And so it says that there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And now it says, being in agony, the first time we ever see Jesus in agony throughout the Bible. We see him groaning. We see him uh, perplexed because of the, uh, the lostness of a multitude, but we never see Jesus ever in agony until now. It says that he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood that were falling down to the ground. And when he arose up from the prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. You have no idea the wave and force of darkness that is about to sweep over this region, over this area, over your hearts. It's essential that you pray. But Jesus, in agony at this time, realizes that he's going to drink this cup alone, completely alone. Now, the work of the cross and the work of what Jesus went through in the hours that are to come from now was twofold. The first thing that Jesus would have to do is that he would have to drink or absorb all of the sins of all of humanity. That is, that every sin that was ever committed from the time that Eve first partook of that fruit until the last sin that ever will be committed, all of that sin had to be literally placed upon Jesus Christ, meaning that he became guilty of every one of those offenses before the Father meaning that the father would look at the son as though he had done those things. Now, I remember what it was like to even just be a child and to have to stand before my father 
when I did something that was wrong and the sense of shame that would come over me because of the guilt and the realization of what I had done and the disappointment that was in his face. And now we see Jesus not just saying, okay, I'll pay for it, whipping out his checkbook, but rather every one of those sins that you and I have committed are being laid to the very soul of his person. And all of the shame and all of the disappointment and all of what that is and what that smells like and looks like to heaven, all of that is becoming apparent between the father and the son at this time. And the father is looking at the son as though he is guilty of all of those things. And then the second part of that, not just the absorbing of those sins within himself, but now he also has to pay the price for those sins, which is that he must absorb the wrath and the punishment and the anger of God that those sins bring with them. Now, I believe that Jesus is much, much, much more in agony about the first part of that than he is about the second part of that. That is the shame of the separation that is happening between the father and the son because of his sin is of infinitely more torture than the punishment and the pain that will come physically through the cross and the whipping and all the rest that will follow after. The thing that drove Jesus more than anything else was his relationship with his father. In John chapter 17, we have recorded the high priestly prayer of Jesus just before he's going to go to the cross and he intercedes for the last time. And in verse 5 of John chapter 17, Jesus with a sense of hopeful expectation, prays and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me now with the glory that I had with you from before the world was. That's what drove him every day. What kept Jesus moving through this world was the reality that one day he would be by the Father's side again, that there wouldn't be the distance of heaven and earth, that his presence wouldn't be something that is sensed on earth from heaven, but rather they would be there together, one joined in the presence of each other that drove him. And he knew what it was. And that's why nothing could move him or shake him because the glory of that experience was worth infinitesimally amounts more than anything else that this world could ever uh, lay before him. He was driven by the presence of the Father. And now to have that fellowship broken as he would absorb the sins of the whole world. That is the agony that Jesus is feeling at this point. My wife and I were at a church service. I I shared this, I think, on Saturday morning. I hope I'm not repeating myself, but it's worth it if I didn't. We went to a church in the South, and as we sat through the service, um, the pastor, well-meaning, not a bad guy, said something that almost made me throw up. And what he said was, and he was talking about our, um, you know, our experience when we get to heaven and what that's going to be like. And he was talking about the responsibilities that we'll have, the, you know, the way heaven has cities and, and responsibilities and all the rest, and we'll be a partaker in all of it. He's talking about that. But then he said this, he, verbatim. He said, most people believe that when we get to heaven, we're just going to stand on a cloud and we're going to sing holy, holy, holy infinitely. And he said, How appealing is that? And when he said that, I went, oh, inside. Oh, and and here's why. Not because I'm a Pharisee and like, that is so doctrinally wrong. You know, here's, here's not why. 
because he is going to eat those words. And here's why he's going to eat those words. Let me be a prophet for a moment, and I'm not a prophet. But when we get to heaven, the thing that we will want to do more than anything else is to stand in his presence and to decry, holy, holy, holy. That is the glory of heaven. See, if you take Jesus, if you take the Father out and you just have streets of gold and a river and fruits that bear and eternal life and all the rest, listen, let me tell you something, that is hell. Because what makes heaven heaven is not the atmosphere and the scene, it's him. And what Jesus is in agony about at this juncture is the separation that will exist between the Father and the Son for the first time in all of eternity. But that's what it costs. In verse 47, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And when they which were around him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them, Luke is gracious, John tells us it was Peter, (laughs) smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now this is a valiant apostle for you, isn't it? I mean, there's soldiers and armed men and he goes for the servant of the high priest, a young man by the name of Malchus, and he's a terrible shot. He only gets his ear, lops it off. And it says that Jesus answered and he said, suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretch forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. There are three things in this little segment that are worth our attention. Number one is the kiss. We see that Judas came to Jesus and still with the appearance of being in allegiance with him and still seeking to maintain the reputation of character, he comes to Jesus and he betrays the very Son of God with a kiss. A man so completely phony that he carries his phoniness even to his very act of betrayal. The second thing we see is the sword. The sword is a symbol for Peter of what the Bible calls zeal without knowledge. It's a portion or a part of our Christian experience that every single one of us goes through. I don't think that it is, well, maybe it is, but I'll say for the most part, it is almost impossible that a person comes into encounter with Christ, is changed, born again, and doesn't go through a season of zeal without knowledge. You remember what it was like when you first got saved and you had all the answers? You went from darkness to light. You knew, you understood truth. The Bible is true. The world makes sense. And you had all the answers for everyone. I remember when I first got saved, I went home after uh, hearing, hearing a message that was just so alive to me. It was so real. It was like the kingdom of God was almost visible. It was so powerful. And I went home. It was before I was married. And I, I sat down, my mother and my brother and my sister, and I preached the whole message to them. I just sat down and gave them the whole thing right then. I said, you guys got to see it. You've got to get saved. You've got to give your lives to Christ. And they looked at me and they said, you need to be checked in somewhere. 
And I was like, how can you not see it? How could you not understand? How can, I mean, you, you used to beg me to come to church with you. And now I'm there and, and now you can't see it? Are you crazy? But you know what happened? Oh man, did I become good with a sword. You guys are, you're the ones that are unsaved. You're the ones that don't know it. And I was good, man. I was cutting off ears all over the place. And that's what happens when you have zeal without knowledge. You are so right that you're dead right. And rather than being effective with the light and the truth that you have, what you're actually doing is you're cauterizing the hearing of people. They see you coming and they don't say, oh, wow, good. (laughs) They say, oh, no, (laughs) another round of abuse, you know, in the whole thing. But that's why, as we're going to see, the separation of the wheat and the chaff is so necessary because there's more to learn than just the knowledge of being right or the theology of what truth is. There's a soul at stake. There's a life, there's a work that's going on there. So there's a sword, but then there's the cup and it's not seen. But what we see is in Jesus here, a heart and a mind of absolute and total surrender. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to resist. His heart has been prepared. He's put it before the Father. He's received his answer. And now he's ready to go through whatever it is that he has to go through. The best example, of course, in this passage is Jesus. He says, Father, if there's a cup, then let me drink it. So they took him and they led him and they brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid, that means a little girl, beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man also was with him. And it says that he denied him, saying, woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not, more emphatic. And about the space of one hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I know not what you say. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, you shall deny me thrice. And Peter went out, and Peter wept bitterly. Peter comes to a point now where he does something that he thought that he would never do. He sees now for the first time the weakness that is in him in place of the strength that he thought he had. And Peter finds himself in a place now where he is completely and absolutely and totally cut off from what he thought was his relationship with Jesus. He is backslidden. He has sinned greatly on the same level of what Judas has done maybe just a few steps before. And he realizes in his heart at this time, I was the one. I was the one that Jesus was talking about at the table when he said, one of you will betray me. And and, and the the weight of what he did and then the eye contact that he made with Jesus overwhelmed him and he broke and he went out and wept bitterly. Now, the amazing thing about Peter's sin here is that Peter's sin follows the exact same progression as all sin does. There are essentially five steps that Peter takes that lead to his backsliding, that lead to the sin that he would commit 
in that day when he would deny the Lord three times, the Lord that bought him. And it's the same five steps that we can find ourselves in that will lead us to sin to a place where we're filled with shame and remorse and the feeling as though we've been cut off from Jesus himself. The first step in in Peter's backsliding is that he didn't heed the warning that Jesus gave him. See, Jesus gave a warning. He said, Peter, you're in danger. You're going to deny me three times. You have a propensity to this weakness and you need to listen to the voice of God as I speak into your life and tell you that you have this thing that you need to watch out for. I believe that God does that in every one of our lives. That before we ever sin ourselves into a place of shame, we have already blown through many roadblocks that God has placed up before us to give us a warning that we should take heed because we're on a dangerous path or on a slippery slope. There's always a warning. God is faithful to warn us before we sin, before we fall. The second step in Peter's backsliding is that he ignored Jesus' plea to pray. What was part of the daily prayer that Jesus gave to each of his disciples, to you and I, when he was teaching them to pray? Part of it was that we would not enter into temptation, right? And Jesus, on top of that, specifically told them at that moment that they needed to pray lest they should enter into temptation. But their eyes were too heavy and they thought it wasn't important. It's not essential. Besides, what part could prayer have in alleviating temptation? If you're tempted, you're tempted. And they failed to see or call upon the help of God for the temptation that was coming their way. Listen, church, it is so important that part of our prayer is that we ask God to deliver us from temptation. But before that, even, it's important that we pray, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how seldom we pray as we stack the responsibilities that we have as Christians? We serve, we come to church, we read, but the last and hardest thing for us so often is prayer, isn't it? But prayer is so vital in keeping us in a place where we are not tempted and thus we don't sin. So Peter ignored Jesus' plea to pray. The third thing that Peter did is that he followed afar off. It tells us that back up uh, in verse um, 54. It says they took him, but Peter followed afar off. And anytime you allow distance to be created between you and Jesus, know that you are in a dangerous place. The Bible talks about some of the good kings and some of the good men and women in the Bible. And it uses this word. It says that they did cleave to the Lord. The word cleave means that the two are inseparably joined together. And the opposite of cleaving is that the two things are separated, even by a millimeter. And listen, anytime you and I are not cleaving to the Lord and not allowing anything to come into our lives that would separate him from us, even in the least, we are in a dangerous place. It is essential that we cleave to the Lord. What did Paul say to the church in Acts? It says that he did exhort them and testify that with purpose of heart, they would cling to the Lord. And that is such an important thing, especially in the days that we're living in church. Understand that there is a wave of darkness that is coming upon this world right now. And unless we are cleaving to the Lord, we risk coming under a temptation that is too strong for us. And the Bible says that there will be many in the last days that cave to that temptation and that will fall away from the Lord in the last days. The third or fourth thing that Peter did that led to his backsliding is that he warmed himself at the enemy's fire. He found a place where they had kindled a fire on an unseasonably cold night in Israel. And he warmed himself among the servants of Satan. And you can be sure of this, Christian, is that when you find yourself reaching for comfort in worldly things, 
When your comfort exists in the entertainment and in the amusements or in the substances or the experiences of this world, know that you're in a dangerous place when you begin to warm yourself at the enemy's fire. And then number five is that he sat down among the servants. That is, that he was in close fellowship, not close proximity, but close fellowship with the enemies of the Lord, engaging with them. The Bible says that we are in the world, but that we are not to be of the world. And the moment we lose that distinction and we begin to fellowship and let the world and the people of the world into our hearts and our lives in a way that there is an affection, we are going to be drawn to the path that they are on. And so we see Peter with his guard completely down in these things. And it led to the point where he would deny Jesus three times. Now, how strong was Peter? A little girl says, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Uh, No. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? Can you see the contrast between what? I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. I'll go under the sword. I'll I'll take the guillotine for you, little girl. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Go over there. Do you see what's in us? This is what's in us. Now, here's an amazing thing I want you to see. Look at verse 61 again. It says, and the Lord turned and he looked upon Peter. Do you see that word looked right there? It's the same exact word that is employed by John in John chapter one, verse 42, that when Jesus looked at Peter for the very first time, that he discerned him, that he examined him, that he saw him through and through. It is only used this word three times in the context of Jesus looking at a person. Number one is John 142. The second one is with the rich young ruler. And then the third one is here. So twice with Peter, it says that Jesus looked at him the same way that he looked at him on the first day that he was saved. Now, what's the point of that? Why is that significant? Here's why. Because although Peter thinks that he has clean sinned himself out of God's favor completely, in reality, Jesus sees the same man right now when he denies him that he saw on the day when he first called him. And that is a very comforting thing for you and I to realize, isn't it? Because sometimes in our weakness or in our sifting or in the weight of the temptations that we go through and the failures that are inevitable within our lives, we think that we've actually let God down as though he didn't know what was in us. Oh God, I I, I didn't think I could do this. I didn't think it was in me to, to, to behave this way or to do this thing or to fall again. I promised myself I would never do this again. Or that this would never be a part of my life. And here I am. And God, how could you ever accept me now? And you know what he says? He says, I saw that from the foundation of the world. And I chose to absorb that and drink the cup of that before you ever professed me for the very first time. It's all covered. It's under the blood. And in this remorse that Peter is feeling, there is a glimmer of hope. But not yet. Because Peter feels at this point that he is done. It says that the men that beheld Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and they asked him saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spoke they against him. You know, when I read this, um, you know, I'm looking at the, the crucifixion and the passion of Christ in the context of 
the fact that he absorbed everything that we deserved, every sin of mankind. And you look at what took place here with the blindfold and then the fists of man. And, and as I just was thinking about this for a little while, what came into my uh, heart and into my mind is that um, have, you ever, have you ever been so angry at someone for something that they legitimately did against you that you just wanted to punch him in the face? I, I mean, I know that that's probably just one or two of you here. Um, but if you really search through the chronicles of your life, you know, through your elementary school years into your early adulthood, you know, maybe you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend at some point that, you know, or, or saw anything, you know, and you just had someone that just, they legitimately burned you and everything inside of you, you had the white knuckled fist and you actually punched something thinking, wishing it could be them. Am I the only one here that's ever, ever felt that before in my life? I look at this passage and, and here's what I see in my mind. I, I, see, I see me and I see me talking to God about this, uh, this justice that I, I want to deliver. And I say, Father, do you see what they did? I mean, do you, can, we like, can we hash this out here? Do you see what they did? They deserve a punch in the face. I, I mean, they deserve it. And I know, Lord, I know that your word says vengeance is mine that I will repay. But Lord, would you hit them, please? Because they need to be hit hard now. And here's what the father does. He confers with the son and he says, son, let's talk about this situation. And they look at it and they look at both sides and they come to the conclusion that, yeah, you know what? Yeah, this, this is worthy of a punch in the face. You've got a case here. We're going to take care of this. And you say, yes, thank you. And you know what the father does is he turns and he curls up his fist and he punches his son right in the face for the thing that you're seeking vengeance for from someone else. That is what Jesus is absorbing right now. He's absorbing every punch in the face that is deserved that ever has been done. Now, if that's not enough for us to release a little bit of bitterness, I don't know what will. Is to realize that Jesus took that sin that was done against you upon himself. And he didn't deserve it. It says, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council and asked him two questions. The first, verse 67, art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor will you let me go. We've already danced around this mountain, Jesus says. I've told you and you don't believe. I've also asked you questions that you were unwilling to answer. And you won't let me go. There's no sense in us having this conversation. But then he adds to that in verse 69. He says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they said all, and then here's the second question, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, You say, and the context is rightly, that I am. And the word I am is very purposeful. It's the same words that were used to describe the name of God when God said to Moses, tell them that my name is I am. And thus Jesus is answering this question in the affirmative. Now those two questions were very calculated. The first one, are you the Christ? That was designed to incite the wrath of Rome because if he claims to be Messiah, then that makes him an insurrectionist, a rebel against Rome. The second question is designed to incite the wrath of the Jews. Are you the son of God? If you say yes, it's a claim of blasphemy upon your life. There's, 
two things that they're not considering in this examination of Jesus. Number one is this, is that the burden of proof at this point is not upon Jesus to prove that he is the son of God. It's upon them to prove that he isn't. Because he has already proven through his works that he is who he's claiming to be. And yet they've thrown out all of that evidence. And so they have to prove that he's not the son of God, but yet he is. The second thing that's remarkable is in the last verse of the chapter. It says that they said unto him, what need or what need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard out of his own mouth. Now, that's amazing. I circled it. I highlighted it. I put a star next to it because it's really funny in a way. It's sad, but it's funny because think of this for a minute. If someone isn't saved and they stand before the great white throne, God's going to play the tape of when they heard the gospel, right? And, and so it's going to be like, Dan, you shared with someone who worked for you. And, 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 and they said, I never knew. And he says, play the tape. And then there's Dan sharing with his employee. Don't you know that Jesus died for you? He's the son of God, you know? And they say, yeah, you're full of it. You know, you're crazy, you know? And they go on their way. See, you did know, you were told and you did nothing with it. But these people, they got the witness from the very mouth of Jesus himself. They say it. They say, we have no further need of any witness for we ourselves have heard him from his own mouth declare that he's the son of God. There is no greater condemnation that can come upon a man than that he would hear the voice of the very Son of God himself declaring who he is with the evidence of all that he has done and for them to refuse. It's a powerful witness against themselves. The musicians can come as we close out this chapter. What has taken place tonight in our text is two things happening intertwiningly or simultaneously. What we have is we have Peter failing at the same time that Jesus is conquering. Peter is falling, Jesus is standing. And what that is, is that it is a complete picture of the Christian life. It is the perfect picture of what God has done for us and what God is doing in us. Do you realize, church, that the strength to stand is not in you, it's not in me? The strength to have a righteousness that causes us to earn heaven is not in us. It is only through him. And on our absolute best day, we will fall so incredibly and utterly short of his glory. There is no righteousness in us at all. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. We have all turned aside. We have all gone astray. The poison of venomous beasts is under our tongue. Our feet are swift to shed blood, the Bible declares that we have not known the way of God. And all of us have fallen under the weight of that sin. And there's not one of us that can save ourselves. And sometimes after we get saved, we think, well, now I can. Now it's in me, but it's not. And do you understand that the point of conversion, not salvation, but change that takes place within our lives, it happens at the moment we fail and realize that he succeeded. That's where change happens. That's where sifting, that's where the chaff is broken off and the value of the wheat is exposed and we become useful to God. When we realize it's not about what we can do in our strength, it's about what he has given us through his. And it's the testimony that we have before us. Father, we thank you tonight for the word. We thank you for what it represents and what it means. 
And we thank you for Jesus who was willing to take the cup that was filled with filth and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we thank you for the cup of his salvation and for the strength with which he stood, absorbing the full weight of the shame of our sin and the wrath that followed. Father, may we tonight, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be filled with gratitude and appreciation and affection for you and for what you did for us. That we could see ourselves in this scene and that we might recognize in some way, Lord, that just as you looked at Peter and saw what he was and what you would make him, so you've also done with each one of us. And Father, we desire tonight to surrender to the hand of a wise potter who molds and shapes his clay. And we would ask, Lord, that not only would we be sifted and crushed as is needed according to your will, but that ultimately we would come conformed into the image of Christ. And that we would be, Lord, what we've been called to be and made to be. That we might apprehend that for which we've been apprehended. That we might know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. And that we might be conformable into the image of your death that the life of Jesus also might live in us. And Father, would you, by your grace and through your Holy Spirit, make Jesus the supreme affection of our lives that there would be no other thing that would drive us or move us, but that your love would be so totally manifested within our hearts that there would be nothing else that would satisfy us or that could, but it would be you and you alone. So make us what you've called us to be, Lord. Perfect us. Sift us if necessary. But above all, reveal yourself, Lord. And may we walk closer and closer with you. We make it our prayer tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.